Well, this morning we get back into Luke's gospel. Again, looking at it from a slightly different perspective, focusing on where we see the word and where we see the word revealed, where we see the word made flesh, as John puts it in his gospel, how Luke portrays the word made flesh in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this morning we'll be in chapter 3, looking at verses 1 to 22, mostly uh, describing the work of John the Baptist, but ending with Jesus' baptism, two things that I think go very much together uh, as we consider the Word and the Word made flesh. So let me read that for us, John 3, 1 to 22, I mean Luke 3, 1 to 22, sorry. Luke chapter 3, 1 to 22, the very word of the living God. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, 
added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. May he write it up again. May he write it upon our hearts here this morning. As we come to it, let me once again pray for us. Dear Father in heaven, we again uh, plead your blessing as we come to this part of our service where we hear your word from you. We pray that it would be true for each of us here this morning, that we would hear your voice. We pray that you would fulfill the promise that you've made, that your word goes out and does not return to you empty, but instead accomplishes what you purpose for it and is successful in the things for which you send it. May that be true here among us this morning. We also ask for ourselves that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and ears to see and hear what you have for us this morning. Make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Again, all this we ask in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Like many other of these texts, there's more that could be said, but I want to focus on the word this morning and how the word comes and how the word is announced. Now, in ancient times, when a king was going to visit one of his towns or one of his cities, he would send a herald ahead of him to announce his coming, sometimes with a retinue of other people to help. And the town, in preparation for the king's arrival, would go out and, well, these dusty, dirty roads, not made of stone or pavement or anything, they're just dirt. They're rutted and they're full of holes, bumps, rocks. Well, they'd go clear out all the rocks. They'd fill in all the holes. They'd smooth it out. So the king would have a smooth arrival as he entered and approached the city. This is the context behind the Old Testament reading, Isaiah 40. A king is coming, but the way is not prepared to enter into a town or city, but the way is prepared in the wilderness. And it's not a mere road that's going to be fixed as this king comes, but the valleys themselves are going to be lifted up. Mountains and hills are going to be thrown down and made low. The uneven ground is going to be made level, and the rough places are going to be made as to be like a plain. And this king is not coming in Isaiah 40 just to one city or town, but he's coming to the whole earth. This king in Isaiah dwarfs any human king. He claims the world as his kingdom. Who is coming in Isaiah 40? The Lord in all his glory. He will be revealed, says Isaiah, and all flesh shall see it. A powerful chapter, Isaiah 40. We're spending time in and studying and learning. Now, all four Gospels, all four of them, 
say that those verses I just referred to from Isaiah 40 are about John the Baptist. (laughs) John the Baptist is the one who comes from the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Luke quotes this passage more extensively than anybody else. And by the end of his quote in verse 6, he modifies it somewhat to say that the Lord of glory is going to be revealed as the salvation of God itself. But John is the herald. John is the forerunner. John is the one giving notice that the king is coming. And what he's really announcing is the coming of the word, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ himself. You may have noticed, John is not the only one in this passage making an announcement about the Word. God himself also makes an announcement about the Word. You, he says, are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. These two announcements tell us very important things about Jesus, the Word. And I want to look at those two announcements to begin the sermon this morning and then finish by looking at the context in which those announcements come the context of John's ministry and what it's about what it's about to prepare the way for the coming king to prepare the way of the lord so first the two announcements one by John one by God the father both again tell us something about who Jesus is but also something about his character, what kind of a person he is. John's job, his calling, is to be that herald that goes before the king to announce the king's coming, to prepare the way. Now what's interesting, at least to me, first of all, is that John is mistaken for that king. (laughs) He's the herald. But the people mistake him for that king. That's unusual. It shouldn't happen. We know who the king is and we know who the herald is. The herald is not the king. He may be traveling alone or he may have a small party of advance men with him. John had disciples. We know he was surrounded by disciples from the other gospel passages and from Acts. But, on the other hand, the herald does speak with the authority of the king. He comes in the authority of the king, and he speaks with the king's authority. The king is coming. Get ready, city. And here's how you need to get ready. So the herald shouldn't be mistaken for the king, but in this case it it happened. Possibly, maybe probably, because John spoke with such authority about spiritual matters that the people who were expecting the arrival of their Messiah and king thought that John might be him. This guy speaks with such authority. Maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the one. Well, indeed, the people were in expectation, it says in verse 15. And they wondered if John was this promised Christ. But he replies in verses 16 and 17, denying that he is the Christ, and then announcing the true Christ. And there are four things that stood out to me in this denial and announcement. First, that this coming king, this coming Christ, this coming Messiah, the first thing is that he's mightier than John. 
He's more worthy than John. His baptism is a different kind of baptism and a superior baptism to John's. And he's also coming in judgment. John's here to give a warning. The Messiah is going to come in judgment. Let's look at those quickly in turn. The, the, very simple in some cases. The coming king is mighty, mightier. John doesn't, or Luke doesn't elaborate on this for us. But it's an indication that the coming Christ is going to do greater things even than John did. It's a hint at at the power of the coming word, which we've talked about. The word comes with power. He's more worthy than John. And when you had disciples at this period of time, a rabbi would be surrounded by disciples, close learners, close followers, who would go with him as he traveled and taught. And disciples were, were expected to serve the rabbi, the teacher, get his meals, help him do all sorts of things. But one of the uh, ancient rabbis says, there's one thing no disciple ever has to do, and that's untie the teacher's shoes. Because that's such a lowly, disgusting job, not even a disciple should have to do it. Just go get some servant. Go get some lackey. Not even a disciple should do something that lowly. But what does John say? I'm not even worthy to do that. I am not even worthy to untie this coming king's shoes. That's how much more worthy the coming Christ is, the true Christ, than John himself. Don't mistake me for the Christ. I'm not even close to him. Now, what's interesting to me about this as well is John, or Jesus is going to say later about John in Luke 7, and it's also in Matthew 11, that up until the time of John, no man was as great as John. Think about that. John is greater than Noah, than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, greater than Joseph, the great servant of the Pharaoh and savior of his brothers and sisters in Egypt. Greater than Moses or Joshua, who led the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Greater than David or the great king Solomon. Greater than any prophet. Greater than Elijah or Elisha or Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. Greater than Job, a righteous man. John is greater than them all, says Jesus. What does John say about himself? I am not even worthy to untie his shoes. I'm lowlier than the lowliest servant compared to this coming Messiah. Wow. That's a statement. He's coming with a superior baptism. John baptized with water. But the coming king will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's baptism is a a baptism acknowledging sin and coming in repentance. It's a baptism of repentance. The person being baptized acknowledges that they are a sinner and need to be cleansed, need to be washed. But when the Holy Spirit comes on a person, there's righteousness and holiness. The complete opposite statement is being made. The person baptized with the Holy Spirit has righteousness and holiness. Who can do that? That's a far better baptism. 
than merely being a penitent sinner. But even more than that, he's coming in judgment rather than just a mere warning. It's, it's interesting that John's words to the crowds are pointed and even harsh. The very first thing we hear him say, other than the Isaiah quote, <laughs> the crowds come to him to be baptized. This is seeker sensitive, right? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's, he's calling them a brood of vipers because they're hypocrites. You come to be baptized to deal with your sin. You come to to be baptized as a statement of repentance. And what do you do? You go out and do the same evil works you've always done. That's the point of his message. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he says in verse 8. Don't depend on the fact that your, your father is Abraham. That means nothing. We'll get to this in a little bit. In, in Judaism of this time and, and before, Jews were not baptized. Oh, they went through ritual washings, but they weren't baptized. Gentiles were baptized. They weren't of Abraham's seed. They didn't have circumcision. They didn't have the fleshly things that, that an Israeli, Israelite had. So they had to be washed. Their, their bodies were filthy. For a Jew to be baptized is a powerful statement. But he says, don't depend that, on the fact that you're a Jew. Don't depend on the fact that you've been baptized. If you do not show works that demonstrate your repentance, be warned. Why? Because one is coming greater than I with a greater baptism who's mightier than I am. And when he comes... He's going to cut down the fruit, the trees that don't bear fruit. He's going to throw them into the fire, it says in verse 9. And he uses this tremendous analogy. The axe, the axe is laid to the root. It, someone's going to pick it up and start chopping unless that tree starts bearing fruit. Other people wonder, what do we do? What do we do? <laughs> How can we avoid this? And again, he teaches about good works. Share with others your clothing and your food. Don't be greedy, tax collectors. Collect what you're supposed to collect. Soldiers, don't use your power and your position to threaten and extort others for your own gain. Be content with the wages that you have. Because the one who's coming is coming in judgment. He's going to winnow out the chaff, burn it in the fire. But the wheat, the grain, he's going to take into his very own storehouse. Which would you rather be, the wheat or the chaff? So John's announcement is that this expected Messiah who's coming is the greatest man who's ever lived. Far greater than John, who will do greater works. But he's also preparing the people to be ready for this coming. Judgment is coming. And then we have the announcement of the Father. Jesus goes to be baptized. I'll talk about that more in a little bit. And as he is praying, the heavens open. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove in bodily form. And a voice, which is God's voice, announces, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. What a powerful statement. A different kind of announcement 
John announces a greater man to come, but God's announcement reveals that this Jesus is not just a man, he's God. This is my son. This is God. He is the holy God. He is the beloved one who's never sinned, who's never erred, who's never rebelled against the Father. This is my beloved son. We, th- we read Isaiah 40 as we did for our Old Testament reading, and we see God is so far beyond who we are. Now we have a man who's so far beyond we are, be- not only because he's a great man, but because he's God himself, loved by God. Who is the man who is loved by God? We talked about that last week. I like the fact that this passage answers two great controversies that have... <laughs> plagued the church for 2,000 years. Who is God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all there in verses 21 and 22. The Son, the Spirit, like a dove, the voice of God the Father from heaven. God doesn't appear as the Father for part of the time, then the Son. They're all there together. Who is Jesus? He's both man and God. A man like John, but also God's own beloved Son. So this great king to come, this Messiah, this Jesus who submits to John's baptism is an incredibly great and important person with a better ministry, a better teaching, a better baptism than John. His own authority to separate true children of Abraham, the wheat, from the false, the chaff. Time to get ready. Time to be prepared. Make straight the way. The king is coming. Now it's tempting to look at this just historically and say, well, that was was for the Jews. They needed to hear that. They were all legalistic and pharisaical. They had strayed from the law. They had strayed from their ways. They were looking to their own righteousness. They needed to hear about repentance. They needed to hear about good deeds that come from repentance, not from strict legalistic obedience to the law. That's about them. Oh, those poor Jews, they weren't ready for their Messiah. Well, that's got a lot of truth in it. But here we are 2,000 later. The Messiah came. The Messiah lived. The Messiah completed his work for his people. Lived righteously, died as a sacrifice, a substitute for sinners, rose to life and ascended to the Father. There's more work yet to be done. Because he's coming again. We recited it. He's coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. We don't know when he's coming, but we're told to always be ready. (laughs) Be ready. Be prepared. Prepare the way of the Lord. That's a question we should ask ourselves. Are we ready for the Lord to return? Are we prepared for his coming? That was John's question. That was his challenge to the crowds around him. It was his job to prepare the way of the Lord to make known the salvation of God. And that's the context of these announcements. John's task to prepare a people ready for their God. That's part of his father's song that he sang back in chapter 1. Repent, he says. Seek forgiveness of sins and do good works 
as the fruit of repentance. And so that's what John did. That's, he did what he was called to do. It says in verse 3, he came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was the word of God that was given to him. And it was the word that he faithfully proclaimed. Crowds coming to be baptized by John. And again, this is astonishing given Jewish culture at this time. No Jew would be baptized. They'd wash their hands in a ritual washing. They'd wash their feet. They'd go to a pool and maybe do a little scrubbing here and there. They did not get baptized. That was for Gentiles, because Gentiles are dogs. And they need that symbolic cleansing and and kind of a rebirth to be Jews now. Astonishing that so many Jews would come to be baptized by John. There must have been a deep awareness of their need for repentance. But John exhorted them to do something more than just go through a ritual. For many of them, it would have been just, this is another law that we can keep to be righteous and holy before God. John said to them, if you are truly repentant, truly repentant, you will do good works. Not to earn forgiveness, not to earn a favor from God, but it will be the natural, necessary outpouring, the fruit of a repentant heart. John's saying you're not repentant, you're not penitent because you went through some ritual washing. You're penitent because your heart has changed. And a changed heart results in good works. Anything else is just going through the motions. That's the context of what John was doing. Understand what repentance is. Again, are we ready for Jesus' second coming? If not, you better repent and start bearing fruit. Admit your sin, admit your need of a Savior, and turn in faith to Jesus and do the good works that He commands us to do. You can't do it in your own power. You can't do it in your own strength. But he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit that equips us and enables us to do the very things he has called us to do. Pours out his love in our hearts so that we love his law and want to do it and obey him and follow after his ways. Again, we've got this context, the announcement of a king that is coming to visit his people and the need of that people to get ready for that visit. Those who get ready for the visit of the high king of heaven will truly repent in genuine faith and do the good works that are the fruit of that repentance and faith. But there's a question still in the text that perplexes people. If all this is true, why did Jesus get baptized? Why did he undergo this baptism of repentance that was John's baptism because Jesus had nothing to repent of this is the sinless son of God the holy one the righteous one the righteous branch well the standard answer is the right answer Jesus went to be baptized to identify himself with sinful mankind This was a symbolic act 
symbolic act on Jesus' part, saying in effect that while he was the Son of God, as the Father was about to declare from heaven itself, he was also a man, a real man, a true man. He identified himself with sinful mankind. He declared, as, as it were, his solidarity with us. I'm one of you. I'm not God in a fake outer human shell. I don't just appear like a man. I am a man. And in being baptized, I'm one with you. He did not sin, but he did suffer the consequences of of sin and the fall. He got sick. He got tired. He was weary. He was tempted gravely. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at that. So his baptism is a profound statement of union with us. I'm with you. I'm one of you. And we see politicians, we see political movement leaders, social movement leaders on both sides of the aisle. They love to have rallies. They love to have marches. They love to stand together, arm in arm, linked, singing songs or doing whatever identifying one another in solidarity over a particular issue or cause. Think about the symbolism of that as it's done and as it's been done recently in our history. Some of the civil rights marches or or the abortion rallies on the mall in in Washington, D.C. Very powerful statements. We are all together on this. We are all in agreement on this. We are one. Yet that Hills in comparison to what Jesus did in being baptized. In going to John and, and undergoing a baptism that symbolized repentance. The, the God of the universe is saying, I am truly a man. I am one of you. I am with you. We saw this when we went through Philippians. Jesus did not come to lord his authority over us, but to be with us, to humble himself, to serve us, to ultimately die for us. And that sacrifice is so much more meaningful because he didn't die just as some kind of religious icon or holy man or mythological being of some kind. He died as one of us. He died... (laughs) He was with us. As a man, he died for men and women and children. We know that sacrifice is then effective for us and powerful for us to save. But it's also an example for us. We know we're one body. We can read 1 Corinthians 12. Not everybody's a hand, not everybody's a foot or an eye or whatever. We're all different parts of one body. We believe it. We teach the doctrine. How do we show it? How can we show it? Jesus went down to the water and got baptized like everybody else. What can we do to live out that truth that we are one? How can we live that out as part of the necessary fruits of our salvation? Have you ever thought of that before? I don't think I have. And I think I should have. How can I show my solidarity with others in the faith? 
How can I identify with them? How can I live in such a way that everybody knows that we are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are one body? What would that look like? And maybe it's some of the things that we commonly do in a church, food ministries and clothing ministries and ways of teaching and helping and discipling others, reaching out on the street to those who are still in darkness, refusing to be greedy and judgmental and threatening and extorting others, being content with what we have. That's all true. But what would it look like in relation to our, I don't know, our brothers and sisters being persecuted in the Middle East? The nations I mentioned in my prayer, in Nigeria, in the Sudan, in Egypt, in China. How do we show solidarity with them? Christians around the world are being kidnapped and sold into slavery and prostitution. How do we show solidarity with them? What about those brothers and sisters brutally shot in Charleston this week? How do we show solidarity with those kinds of people? How do we react to the anti-God hatred that's growing in the world today and demonstrates itself in various ways, whether through racism, which is ugly, or sinful sexual behavior, the selfishness and greed that's promoted in our entertainment industry. How do, we, how do we show our love and concern for those folks and our solidarity with them? I, I'm asking questions because I don't know the answers. But I feel in my being, the very depths of my being, the necessity to do this in some way, shape, or form. Because here's the deal. If Jesus did it for me, if Jesus did it for you, how can I not do it for my brothers and sisters? How can I not? How can I withhold from them something that Jesus gave to me? Because he's coming again. That day of judgment will be terrible for those who refuse to repent and believe. Are we ready for that? If not, you'll be burned like chaff. But Jesus Christ did come, true God and true man, to seek and save the lost, but also to identify with and humbly serve the poor, the meek, those who mourn, those who hunger, those who thirst for righteousness, those who suffer for their faith. I would hope that in imitation of our Savior, we would be ready and willing to humbly do the same. How? I don't know. But something. May God give us wisdom and grace to do those things that our Savior has showed us and taught us to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we truly do mourn with... uh, those who have been caught up in the, some of the terrible acts that we have been reading about, that we've discussed around here many times over the last, not just weeks or months, but years even, we see a rising tide of rebellion against you, against Jesus and his church. And there seems to be a growing need for us to be able to rally around one another and to, to show some solidarity in Christ, in the faith, with those who also have repented and believed. 
We lack wisdom and understanding for how this might be done, but we ask that you would show us the way, give us grace and mercy toward uh, all those around us, those who are lost, that they might come to faith, those who are being persecuted, that they might be relieved of their suffering, uh, and may we be salt and light to those around us, ready and eager to share the good news of the gospel, as John was and as Jesus came to do, preaching the kingdom. We cannot do it in our own strength, in our own power, and so we ask again for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit to equip us and enable us, to teach us, to guide us into all truth, and to enable us to put to use the gifts and skills that he has given to us for your glory and for our enjoyment of you and of each other in the body of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.